is August 23rd, year 2007, and it's the Ontolog Invited Speaker event with uh, Jason Barron, Director of Litigation from NARA, uh, for us uh, on the topic, Lawyers, Language, and Legal Risks, Emerging Issues in E-Discovery. So let's go down the list and have everyone uh, give a brief introduction of themselves. So I'll start with Susan. Susan? Okay. Uh, thank, thank you, Peter. I'll just say I'm uh, Susan Turnbull uh, with the General Services Administration. Uh, uh, we focus on trying to improve the uh, participation in collaboration in cross-boundary challenges, and I certainly welcome opportunities for the various communities to find better understanding and, and shared ground with one another. Thank you. Bob Teddick? Good afternoon. I'm Bob Chaddock. I'm the principal technologist of the Electronic Records Archives program at the National Archives. I direct the agency's research activities responsive to requirements to digital record collections um, of the United States government. Included in that is technologies such as semantic technologies responsive to support robust access to digital collections. Uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, to join you all this afternoon. Thank you very much, Bob. It's myself. I'm Peter Yim, one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, and I take the opportunity to uh, welcome everyone. Herb? Herb I'm Herb Bassick at Lockheed Martin, Principal Investigator in Semantic Technologies for National Security Applications. Thank you. Thanks, Herb. Uh, Dennis? Hi, I'm Dennis Ahern. I'm Lockheed Martin's Associate General Counsel for Intellectual Property and Technology Law and I'm just really interested in anything to do with computers and um, information processing, et cetera. And this, uh, uh, Herb let me know about this um, uh, group that's, that, that you guys have in this conference, this little uh, uh, seminar, and so I definitely wanted to attend. And hello to everybody. Hello, Dennis. Fabian? Hello, my name is Fabian Neuhaus. I work with Standards and Technology. I'm a researcher here and also work for the um, National Institute for, uh, for Ontological Research in Buffalo. And um, my background is in philosophy, but I've worked for a long time in, on applied ontology for the last years. Thank you, Fabian. Uh, Kevin Haas? Hi, this is Kevin Haas. I work at IBM Research, and our research area is looking to see whether or not you can apply NLP and text mining to um, various things like emails and other communications with an enterprise to support risk compliance and e-discovery. Thank you, Kevin. Let's try to find out. Adam? Adam Hi, this is Adam Pease at Articulate Software. We're the developers of the suggested upper merged ontology. Thank you. Patrick DeRusso? Uh, Patrick DeRusso, I, um, I'm deeply involved in the topic map standard as well as open document and unfortunately open XML. So I'm kind of a standards person who's interested in semantic integration. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Patrick Cassidy? Hi, Patrick Cassidy, ontologist, MITRE. Thank you. Uh, Christian Stelloff. 
Well, hello. I'm Christiane Ferber from Princeton University. I am one of the developers of um, the WordNet Lexical Database, a very large um, semantic network for English and uh, now also for some 40 other languages in the world. It's organized somewhat along ontological principles, which is why ontolog ontologists are interested in it. And it's been rather useful for all kinds of natural language processing applications. Thank you, Christian. Uh, Doug? Doug Holmes? Hi, I'm Doug Holmes, uh, Java Professionals. We develop uh, applications uh, using advanced technologies, in particular semantic web technologies. Thank you. Uh, Melissa Dicker? Hi, I'm Melissa Dicker. I'm with Genentech. And I'm in the Knowledge Application Services Group, specializing in advanced search technologies, text mining, and structured vocabularies um, in support of those. Welcome, Melissa. Adrian? Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Adrian Walker. I'm with a company called Reengineering, and uh, we uh, place on the web something called Internet Business Logic, which works as a kind of uh, wiki for um, English business rules uh, that are executable directly. Thank you, Adrian. Kurt? Hi, everybody. I'm an independent consultant based in Santa Clara, California. Thank you, Kurt. And Kurt is uh, uh, one of the three co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, and our, our, our third co-convener is Leo Oberst from MITRE. So, Lever. Uh, yes, uh, I'm the uh, founder of Pritchard Law Webs. We publish LawMoose, which has both a public law portal aspect and a, and a, um, a subscriber version. The subscriber version contains a legal semantic network right now of about 67,000 terms, and um, so I'm interested in um, hearing uh, much more. Thank you. Uh, it's a Yes. Uh, currently with the Information Platform and Solution Group at IBM, uh, focus on information quality. It has nothing to do with ontology at the time, uh, but this is my affinity to ontologies come from previous life. Thank you, Yitzhak. Uh, several people have joined us, so if you have not introduced yourself, maybe uh, please go ahead. Just a oh, quick comment on Itzak. I think you need to update your page on Ontolog, uh, Itzak. It shows you at unicorn.com. Yes. IBM now. Okay. All right. Uh, go ahead. Uh, the lady who is trying to uh, introduce herself. Hello? Oh, hi. It's Lisa Colvin from Genentech. Oh, hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you. you, and thank you for uh, introducing us to your colleague, uh, Melissa. Yeah. Anyone else who has not introduced herself or himself? If not, then I will move ahead uh, with the agenda. I, I would now invite Susan to introduce our speaker. Susan being a long-time Ontolog member, and it's a tradition that we have a a, a, a an Ontolog member to introduce uh, a, a new speaker, uh, a, a speaker or someone who's new in, in the community. So uh, okay. go ahead, Susan. 
Uh, thank, thank you much, very much, Peter. I've had the honor of working with Jason on several expedition workshops together with Bob Chaddock over the past few years, including last month, as, as Peter mentioned. Uh, he's inquisitive, articulate, and highly respected in his legal community and greatly welcomed in all the settings where he's engaged. So he's just one to provide a compelling perspective on the e-discovery challenges and opportunities. Hopefully, he will stir everyone in the in ontology community to explore and surface approaches that might contribute to e-discovery advances. I think e-discovery brings focus and resources to an important aspect of one of the grand challenges of our age, the social societal stewardship of electronic knowledge repositories. Uh, Jason's bio is available to you, but let me just say in brief that Jason is the Director of Litigation at the National Archives and Records Administration. Prior to his present position, Jason served for 12 years as a trial attorney and senior counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice during which time he defended the White House and the archivist of the U.S. as lead counsel in two landmark lawsuits involving the management of White House email. He's an adjunct faculty and holds appointments at a number of universities. He's a representative to the Sedona Conference, where he co-chairs the Search and Retrieval Sciences team. And also important to today, Jason is the co-coordinator of the NIST Text Retrieval Conference, or TREC, the legal track. So welcome, Jason, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, uh, Susan, and I want to thank Bob Chaddock and Susan Turnbull for my introduction into their uh, collaborative workshops, which are a wonderful forum, and I want to thank Peter Yim for uh, the invitation today. I, I need to say right off the bat that the views that I'm expressing um, on this phone call today are my own and not uh, the National Archives or any other organization which I'm associated with. I also should say right off the bat that I think it's the height of presumption for myself to give a talk to everyone who's on the phone here and listening in who probably, uh, if you're a member of the ontolog community, know far, far more about uh, issues about language than I ever will hope to. Um, the, uh, the problem for lawyers is that we don't know very much. And what I will uh, uh, spell out today in the next hour or so is really a baseline for you all to understand where lawyers are coming from. Um, as uh, someone who's worked at the Justice Department and at the National Archives, spent my time in government with complex litigation, this is about the baseline. That is, uh, what I'm going to explain is uh, if you took a, a random sample of lawyers about their understanding of language and search issues. Um, this is about where we are in terms of the state of the art. And so the, the challenge for lawyers is to uh, figure out how to intersect in a Venn diagram kind of way with the communities of knowledge and that you all represent uh, so that we could advance uh, the important uh, goals in the legal profession of having a just and speedy and efficacious resolution of litigation, which is Rule 1 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Let me go to the overview slide, which is number two on the list, and um, I trust that Peter will do that for everyone. Uh, what I intend to do today is to just outline where we are, the myth, hype, and the reality of information retrieval from a lawyer's perspective, to give everybody a sense of sort of a 
a kind of a snapshot of uh, NARA's experience with major litigation involving e-discovery in the U.S. versus Philip Morris case. Talk about the Trek Legal Track, which is, I think, an exciting uh, forum for research in this area, and to talk about other types of strategic challenges more generally uh, from a litigator's hat, from a lawyer's hat, thinking about search issues across the enterprise. And then I'll uh, mention some references. Before I go on further, I can't help but um, uh, give on the phone here two of my favorite quotations, which did not make it. It's sort of on the cutting room floor of the Sedona Conference paper on best practices on search and retrieval. And for some reason, uh, unbeknownst to me, they they were just not uh, accepted as part of the final product. And so here goes. I, this is my opportunity to say it. One is by Henry Adams. Um, he said, no one means all he says, and yet very few say all they mean, for words are slippery and thought is viscous. And the second is from Benjamin Disraeli. He says, and I'm doing it in the politically correct uh, 2007 version of this, as a general rule, the most successful person in life is the person who has the best information. And I think that's the key for us as lawyers. Who can find the best information to resolve lawsuits uh, as as, uh, appropriately and expeditiously as possible and not uh, create situations of jarndice versus jarndice? So with that, let's go to the next slide. Um, which is the caption is definition of ESI, and let's just uh, get into it. And by the way, I will hold questions, I think, because of the forum, subject to Peter weighing in until the the end of uh, my talk here. I usually encourage lots of questions, but because of the the format, I think it's best uh, that we hold off till the end, and then I'm happy to to try to interact as, as best as possible. So definition of ESI, this is a new legal term. Of art, uh, every lawyer who practices in federal court in the United States as of December 1, 2006, and every party to a lawsuit, whether it's a plaintiff or a defendant, has to be aware of this new term of art that's been added in the federal rules. We all of a certain age know what documents are. Um, documents are paper, uh, they're text, they're stuff in boxes, and what lawyers used to do in the 20th century is exchange boxes of documents, and there might be tens of thousands of boxes. But the rules were changed because of a shared consensus that uh, electronically stored data, electronically stored information is is very different for lots of reasons, and that wasn't adequately accounted for in under the old rules of federal civil procedure that the only thing was mentioned was something called data compilations back in 1970. And so there's this new term, but it's, it's, a, it's a funny kind of definition, and it's a somewhat sly on my part to say definition because you will look in vain under the federal rules to actually find a definition of ESI. The advisory notes say uh, that in, in small print that basically the rule is intended to encompass future developments in computer technology. And so email is ESI, and everything on the desktop that you could imagine is ESI from um, uh, word processing and spreadsheets as traditional forms to its messaging to intranets to the web to uh, databases of all kinds. Um, it's really the laundry list is infinitely expandable. So this year, um, maybe wikis are the new new thing for the government to consider uh, and for parties to consider in litigation. And, and next year, uh, we'll all be discussing second life and avatars that we all are in. So, and who knows what the following year is in. So ESI is an infinitely elastic 
definition, which is probably good uh, that the drafters of the federal rules are not overly specific and so not out of date, per se, as of December 2006. So when I talk about ESI, I'll be talking about electronic data in all of its forms. Uh, let's go to the next slide, which is uh, number four. And this one uh, uh, is uh, my attempt uh, with uh, tribute to Stephen Hawking of the fact that we are in a very, very new universe here. Um, the expanding universe of ESI is beyond anything faced by the legal profession uh, heretofore um, because it used to be the case that uh, in litigation, judges and lawyers, even in complex cases, uh, kind of expected to be able to get their arms around everything in a lawsuit. It might be a whole warehouse of documents, but in some sense you employ enough junior attorneys and uh, contract professionals and you can uh, make some nominal efforts to go through everything uh, at least from a sampling perspective, uh, but but certainly everything that uh, that you can get your hands and touch on. The fact is is that this has changed, and it's changed profoundly with the exponential growth of ESI. Um, and I will get to it when we're talking about the U.S. versus Philip Morris case in terms of just how big this uh, universe is. For uh, there is a reference I've, I've uh, done an article with George Paul that's online in the Richmond Journal of Law and Technology about information inflation, and I would encourage the people online to to take take a look at that. And I think it's referenced in the in the notes at the end. So let's go um, to the next slide, which uh, starts an unnumbered set, and I apologize for that, but it's titled "The Myth of Search and Retrieval." Uh, and here we have. Um, something which lawyers uh, don't really understand very well. When lawyers request production of all relevant documents, and now ESI, uh, they really believe that all or substantially all will be, in fact, retrieved by either manual or automated methods of search. So uh, they, they believe generally in the profession that use of keywords, which is a powerful tool um, developed uh, on databases, and lawyers are familiar with Lexis and Westlaw and other proprietary ways of searching through keywords. Uh, they th really think keywords will reliably produce all or substantially all documents from a large document collection. Um, in fact, the case law uh, as it exists in 2007 is essentially judges saying that if only the parties can get together and agree on a set of keywords, then um, basically all of the ESI that might be relevant to a case will be reliably retrieved. Um, and uh, there, there's some, some problems with that uh, status quo position, which uh, we will get into. And the next slide uh, is titled, The Hype on Search and Retrieval. And this is very interesting. Um, for those uh, of you who've ever been to a legal tech conference, it's um, a, quite an experience. There are 10,000 people showing up at Legal Tech 2007 in New York City in January. And I... Um, I guess I acted a little bit like um, uh, Michael Moore in, um, uh, w without a camera and going around um, asking people uh, at various booths at this legal tech conference who, who have software uh, that they are selling or services related to uh, search and, and retrieval to basically show me um, that their products were uh, performing uh, to whatever representations that were made in terms of very high rates of recall. That is, uh, that they're claiming uh, tremendous rates of accuracy in finding all relevant documents. And I, I must confess that I, I didn't leave that 
legal tech conference uh, with too many white papers on the subject. Uh, obviously, um, there are other people in the back room that know more than the people that are selling the products. But in any event, it, it's remarkable um, for me as a lawyer, as director of litigation at the National Archives, faced with potentially tremendous risk for our organization, for the government, um, not to be able to benchmark anything, uh, not to have a uh, consumer reports with a little red dot or a little black dot that tells me um, that one product is better than another in terms of searching for information. And I, I've written on this about a federal benchmarking standard, and I, I do believe that the challenge is still out there to have some sort of objective criteria for the legal profession to use to know how to uh, how well one or more products are doing uh, in terms of search methods. So the Trek project gets a little bit into that um, kind of evaluation, but uh, that I think is is a major challenge that as lawyers face, we really are in the dark um, with respect to how well any particular search method that uh, is being proposed uh, to be out there, whatever it may be, um, is actually doing. So then the next slide is entitled The Reality of Search and Retrieval. And here, uh, what I want to introduce um, to everyone is that the, uh, and it may be that everyone is aware of the Blair and Marin study. In, in 1985, there was a, a, a rather uh, sophisticated study done uh, with respect to a, a document collection of about 350,000 pages where um, the researchers involved uh, asked lawyers to estimate how much uh, they would expect to find by inputting keywords into what was a STAIRS IBM product for this collection of litigation documents. It was a product liability case involving torts in, in San Francisco and an accident that had occurred. And, in fact, um, what happened was that the research showed that really um, the, the keywords and, and the efforts of, uh, to to look through the documents that were part of the research project, only um, found about 20% of the, uh, uh, at least past efforts, had only found about 20% of what actually turned out to be the case of the amount of documents that might be relevant based on all sorts of terms that came up um, in the study that, that lawyers had not figured out might be relevant beforehand, that is, synonyms and other ways of approaching the data. The, uh, the uh, Blair and Marin study is written up in, in a 1985 ACM um, journal, and I'm happy to give sites. There are sites in articles I've written to the study if one wants to pursue it. Uh, and, and David Blair uh, has written about this in several uh, monographs, and I'm happy to, to provide sites to, to everyone. It, remarkably, this is the last study um, about legal matters that involve litigation uh, that I'm aware of that is on a major basis until the Trek legal project. There's been a, a, essentially a 20-year hiatus, tremendous amount of studies in information retrieval um, and information retrieval science in all sorts of ways, but not with respect to lawyers and lawsuits, with the one caveat that uh, Howard Turtle and others have uh, done some work on, uh, on looking at Westlaw and, uh, and uh, uh, the difference between keyword and, and natural language searches. And so there are some studies uh, along the way for that on structured databases, which represent um, uh, like Westlaw or Lexis, but not unstructured data, not heterogeneous data with sensitivities where you want to pull out relevant emails, relevant corporate documents that are in a very highly unstructured corporate realm 
of exponentially increasing variety. No studies like that, uh, certainly not any non-proprietary ones that I'm aware of. And so, you know, the, the field is, is wide open, and uh, the Trek project is one entree into it, and I'm going to wish to invite at the end uh, everyone to, to dream up ways that we can all uh, think about research uh, into these problems uh, uh, that would be uh, a benefit to uh, multiple communities of interest. And the next slide is, um, is entitled, More Reality, IR is Hard. And Peter, I assume you're with me on this. And yes. uh, on that, um, I think, again, uh, to this crowd, I'm almost embarrassed to to uh, go in uh, in any length about this because you all know this uh, far better than I do. But information retrieval is a very hard problem. It is difficult with English language text. It's even harder with non-textual forms of ESI. All of this is caught up in litigation. Wave files attached to email are caught up. So the search issues about wave files are there. Or video conferences caught up in email. Email is ubiquitous. When you ask for all the email of a corporation, you're asking for every possible electronic object in every format known to man that could be attached to an email. And so the IR problem is way beyond even hard in terms of a textual sense. And um, as I've said, I think lawyers would benefit from having much greater exposure to IR research in general and some fundamental concepts, and we'll talk about those in a few minutes. But uh, there's very little awareness at the moment in the legal community about uh, uh, such basic terms as precision and recall, and then beyond that, um, I think lawyers would benefit from from uh, getting into this in, in much greater detail. The next um, the next uh, slide is why is IR hard in general? And again, uh, you know, I I should only spend two seconds and go on beyond this because you all are certainly uh, aware that uh, of the fundamental ambiguities in language, uh, the fact that. Uh, uh, all of us at, at uh, the desktop make many, many errors in the course of uh, typing documents. And as I've learned in Trek, there are 200 ways to spell tobacco. Um, and uh, OCR problems, non-English text, non-textual ESI that I've talked about, and a lack of helpful metadata. These are all issues for lawyers um, as well as linguists. The next slide is um, problems of language. And again, um, you know, for uh, for all of you, this is uh, uh, relatively, uh, you know, uh, everyday stuff. But I, I do believe that that it comes as a surprise to, I think, to most lawyers that George Bush is a fundamentally ambiguous term. Are we talking about um, uh, George Bush Sr., George Bush uh, the incumbent, uh, Bush 41, Bush 43 of the National Archives? These things matter to us, um, and given that we inherit all the presidential records of every administration at the end of the administration. Um, and there are all sorts of ways that you have uh, uh, polysemous uh, ambiguous terms out there and synonymous terms uh, so that lawyers by themselves think that uh, because they have egos that they can think in dreaming up requests to produce and answering them that they've asked a question with, with, uh, with a term that will encompass as a fishing expedition all that they want to know. But in fact, uh, there's a multiplicity of ways to, to describe any kind of uh, non-trivial topic and therefore, if you're asking for, you know, something about uh, documents related to a diplomat, you may not realize that some emails are talking about consuls or officials or ambassadors or, or any other number of, of X number of, of terms that are out there. And so that's the problem right there in a nutshell with keywords, that there's never, there's never an end to it. Um, and there's certainly one needs to, to account for the fact that there's this 
missing amount of of information if you just uh, come up with uh, one or two keywords for for a particular topic. And the pace of changes is is there, and we are all experiencing text messaging, computer gaming, uh, POS. Is it uh, uh, point of sale or parent over shoulder? And 1337 uh, may or may not um, equal the word elite. If you're a gamer, if you if you turn your object, if you if you turn your iPod or your cell phone upside down, um, there's all uh, sorts of ways that language is morphing and changing in, in in ways that I think are only more rapidly occurring, and therefore uh, needs to be accounted for uh, in terms of uh, litigation uh, and and anticipating that kind of uh, reality. Next slide. Why is IR hard for lawyers? Uh, lawyers are not technically grounded. Um, we are all English majors and political science majors. I know I was. And um, that is a problem because there's a shying away from, from technical subjects. Uh, anything to do with an XY axis probably um, produces some amount of eye glazing on the part of most of the legal profession. Um, the, uh, the traditional lawyering process also doesn't really emphasize project management or process to the extent that I believe it should. And so litigators approach problems as if we're going to go buy some sort of COTS product and just use it, employ it that day or that week and, uh, and um, make sure that uh, the litigation is handled in that way instead of uh, thinking through a uh, process that would make sense for what makes sense in a particular complex litigation context. What is it that the goals of the, of the litigation are all about and how best to form queries uh, and respond to queries uh, uh, accordingly. It's also hard because uh, the world is very complex, and the reality is that huge sources of heterogeneous uh, ESI exist, uh, and they present an array of tactical issues. And while I I would concentrate just on on the fact that uh, that uh, uh, just on databases here and, and try the problems of searching through databases, um, there are bigger problems in the world uh, represented, for example, by backup tapes. Uh, which are, you know, data streamed to tape in a disaster recovery sense and not in any kind of logical format. And so I'm well aware of, of an n-dimensional space here beyond the problems that we face just with accounting for 100 million or a billion emails and how to search those, uh, even if they're in the perfect format um, for searching purposes. And then, of course, lawyers deal with deadlines. They have angry judges and, and uh, angry opposing counsel, and uh, your time is never... Uh, completely determined by yourself and resource constraints on agencies and other parties. And and finally, a failure to employ best strategic practices is sort of I've gotten into. I think lawyers would benefit from from having a more um, interdisciplinary approach to complex problems than the insular world that many many of us uh, are in. So the next uh, slide is entitled Snapshot of 2007 ESI Heterogeneity. And here... Uh, I have already um, foreshadowed this uh, in that I've listed a number of these, but the fact is is that email and voicemail and databases of all kinds and, and Internet applications and all types of um, media of all types, whether it's backups, hard drives, removable media, iPods, you name it, um, along with auto logs, uh, audit logs and, and metadata, uh, are all fair game. It's all fair game for litigation. Um, I have... Uh, uh, I was just quoted in Federal Computer News, and I'll say it here, is uh, that it's really a field of dreams principle, sort of that movie, if you remember it, rather than old baseball players. It's if, if an agency of the U.S. government or if, um, or if any private party uh, deploys 
ESI on the desktop, um, you can be sure that lawyers will come. Uh, lawyers will show up um, and uh, and start demanding access to it. So anything is fair game in the uh, in, in the world of, of lawyering that we're in. And so uh, the search issues are profound, and uh, and the uh, and other issues preservation uh, generally is profound. The next slide is uh, my attempt at um, at uh, dreaming about Sedona um, here as part of the PowerPoint. Uh, Sedona Guideline 11. There is a new um, best practices guide from the Sedona Conference, which is a nonprofit legal think tank under 501c3, uh, consisting of lawyers, judges, and people who like to hang out with lawyers and judges. And uh, the Sedona Conference does a number of wonderful things, and I recommend heartily uh, to anybody who isn't aware of them to, to go to the website. They have a lot of free products, a lot of interesting white papers. Um, particularly, there is one on – there are two that are of interest. One is a recently reissued, a second edition of the Best Practices uh, Guide, which is Sedona Principle Second Edition 2007, which takes into account the new federal rules and has as part of it Guideline 11 about a good faith obligation to do searches. Um, uh, through ESI, including sampling, searching, and, and um, as set out here on the slide. In addition, there is going to be uh, shortly, within I think a couple weeks' time, a new best practices commentary on search and retrieval that I've spent a couple years of my life uh, um, working on and uh, with a whole collection of people and, and very talented people in the Sedona Conference. And so I, I heartily recommend that as well. To, uh, to take a look at and, and when it's out there, and maybe we, Peter, we will add that uh, as a link when it does come out to the uh, the Ontolog page. Uh, and the Sedona conferences are uh, are ongoing, and there there are ways to uh, to certainly uh, be uh, part of the Sedona world. And so I'm happy to talk offline with anybody who who's more interested in that. Um, so let's go to the next slide, which uh, uh, happily now has a number, which is 14. And it's case study U.S. versus Philip Morris um, overall discovery. Here in 2002 and 2003, um, as counsel for NARA, I was faced with a very large problem. There, the uh, the Philip Morris Company and other tobacco companies have been sued by the Justice Department and the Clinton administration for uh, RICO violations of the racketeering laws. Philip Morris um, uh, sent out a request to produce. Uh, uh, lawyers on the line know the Rule 34 request to produce. Uh, they they had 1,726 paragraphs in it, and they propounded it to the United States, which really meant 30 federal agencies. And the last paragraph of the request to produce said, by the way, all of the other paragraphs uh, apply to the National Archives. Um, so within a space of about a year, one uh, as counsel for, for NARA, um, uh, it was my duty to uh, essentially lead a team to not only search for 50 years of paper records, going back to every presidential library to uh, Eisenhower uh, in the 1950s, but also to search for um, electronic records, of which there are 32 million White House email records uh, caught up uh, uh, in um, and and in the legal custody of the National Archives as of the end of the Clinton administration. While they were not available to the public for five years, um, and uh, still aren't in, in various ways. Uh, they uh, were caught up in the special access provision and needed to be searched because they were not available. And so uh, that was the task at hand, to search through 32 million emails, and that's what I'll concentrate, not, not on the paper records for the remainder of the call. The next slide, which is slide 15, is the case study on U.S. versus Philip Morris. And here um, we employed a limited feedback loop, but this is really a pre-federal rules Approach, I would say a 20th century approach to huge amounts of ESI. 
we used 12 keywords that we searched for unilaterally against this 32 million document collection. Um, we used terms like tobacco and, and smoking and tar and nicotine and, and what had been agreed to in-house. Um, and, uh, and to that extent, um, uh, that worked fine, but there were negotiations with um, uh, the opposing parties, uh, the Council for Philip Morris and others, about other additional terms that could be searched for, and there was some back and forth, and there was some uh, agreement, um, remarkably, actually, uh, about what terms were essentially generating uh, too much false positives, too, many, uh, too much noise um, with respect to uh, what the gain was for uh, the litigation. And so um, you would have a term like Marlboro, which generated a lot of emails in the Washington area about Upper Marlboro, Maryland, and PMI, which is Philip Morris. Um, but which is generating lots of emails uh, about presidential management interns for um, reasons that um, go best unexplained. And um, and then the term TI, which is my favorite, and uh, Tobacco Institute, um, where uh might be a legitimate term, but it turned out through my own interactive searching against the database, it didn't generate any additional documents on email be, beyond Tobacco Institute documents, but did produce a remarkable set of uh uh, emails um, involving um, Julie Andrews, The Sound of Music, and the song uh, Do, Re, Mi, uh, Fa, So, La, and then T. So um, one can see these kind of surprises that come in searching for information and a lot of noise, and one would love to have a world where you eliminate the noise and only get the good stuff and only so you, you – um, and that's – that is uh, certainly the world that I would uh, uh, would want for the future. I realized right away that that this case uh, was problematic in, for the future for reasons that I guess I'll get to in a couple of slides. I think I, I, I don't want to anticipate a couple of slides. So we'll move on to uh, slide 16, which is an example of the Boolean search string from from U.S. versus Philip Morris. And here is here is a, uh, a sort of a snapshot of the kind of um, keyword searching and Boolean string in rudimentary form that was employed um, for the litigation to to try to narrow the universe of ESI of emails that were relevant in the litigation, and of course everyone on the phone here could probably dream up uh, additional terms if with enough time and resources. Um, but this is what uh, was an example of of how the government went about um, doing the searches that were hand in that litigation. The next uh, slide is slide 17, and it gives kind of an overview of, of the winnowing process that went on, uh, U.S. versus Philip Morris email winnowing process. You start with 20 million. I know I said 32 million, or I may have in the beginning there were 20 million presidential records that we were responsible for. The others were federal records, and, and someone else searched them. The 20 million presidential email records, the Clinton administration, uh, we put in those keywords with the, with the Boolean operators. You get about 200,000 hits which is about 1% of the uh, the total universe, you get about 100,000 relevant emails. That step is non-trivial. It took six months and 25 people going email by email, attachment by attachment, to winnow down the universe in the way we used to do things, which is a 100% um, manual search after the automated search by keyword. And uh, of that, we produced about 80,000 and 20,000 were put on privilege logs. Um, for uh, the parties to argue whether or not they really should be produced in litigation. Um, one of the problems, this process is a problem that we're not going to solve on this phone or, or we're ever going to solve in my lifetime, I think, which is that only a handful of these 
documents were ever entered as exhibits at trial, and so that's a vast inefficiency about the way that U.S. litigation is conducted. But the bigger problem from a technological perspective is the 1% problem. I have reached the limit here at the National Archives um, at asking colleagues to help me on discovery. So if you have 20 million emails, I guess it's not it's a problem, but it's not the biggest problem ever faced. You just find 25 people who have nothing else to do for six months and task them to be in a room or in their own rooms and, and go search uh, for relevant emails. But what if you have a billion emails? And that's what my successors in interest are going to have in about eight years or whoever is the next president at the end of two terms. Um, for a billion emails, 1% is too much to ask any collection of people at the archives to s- sit down in a room and search, uh, and even to, to cull from the 1%. That is, 1% of a very large number is itself too large a number for uh, what lawyers are doing. And this 1% issue is the tipping point in the profession. It is the signal change that has occurred uh, because of the wake-up call on ESI and the exponential growth through the Internet and through all the networks and everything that's happened from the 1980s and 90s on. Um, Lawyers cannot search 1% after a keyword search or after any kind of search today, actually, um, to uh, manually look through every single email or every single document. Um, Therefore, there has to be a better, first, better means of searching for information. And secondly, one has to be a lot more sophisticated with interactive feedback loops and sampling and uh, structured complexity into the discovery process that lawyers are of a certain age are not well aware of uh, to to deal with this. And I think judges will need to uh, uh, have to confront a party saying it's just too much information to search everything, Your Honor. We need no amount of time on Earth uh, before the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxies merge um, uh, will be enough to... um, to account for the amount of information that's generated in a corporate environment. Um, and therefore, there are other ways to go about the discovery process, and that's, I think, the profession is confronting, and the Stona Conference is, is on the leading edge of, of suggesting that the profession uh, does confront it. So we'll go on to the next slide, uh, which is called Litigation Targets. And I want to sort of breeze through this as well uh, to try to get to uh, what is, uh, I think, of quite of interest, to, which is the TREC project, but uh, litigation targets relevance, maximizing the number of responsive documents, um, minimizing the amount of noise. That's Those are really keys, and the drivers for lawyers, it's an interesting information retrieval problem because lawyers are interested in recall first and precision second. That is, um, let's go to the next slide, which is uh, slide 19 finding responsive documents in a large data set. Um, There really are four logical categories of any large uh, universe of documents from a lawyer's perspective. In the upper left uh, quadrant, you have relevant and retrieved documents from whatever search method you use, and that's the document set, and that's good. Um, You have false positives that are noise, um, that uh, the extent that you have a lot of those, you are doing worse on a precision metric. Uh, not relevant and retrieved. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about in terms of PMI or TI that you get and and you don't want. What really bothers lawyers is the bottom left quadrant, which is relevant and not retrieved, false negatives, because there is the potential for smoking guns. Um, the potential is there 
and it's the, the kind of thing that keeps lawyers up at 3 in the morning. Have you missed some document that would be the key document in your case that isn't retrieved, um, and uh, which uh, turns out to be a false negative? And then you have a quadrant, which is not relevant and not retrieved, which is fine. So there you have it. Um, the uh, What is uh, animating lawyers is, of course, to try to get perfect recall, uh, which is, of course, an elusive goal, but but uh, to get as many documents as you can that are relevant or material to litigation by whatever search methodology or methodologies you use and eliminating the noise. Now, the noise is important. Obviously, you don't want to spend years going through junk and uh, trolling through uh, vast amounts of uh, retrieved stuff, but that's a, that um, uh, is a second-order problem. The first order is not finding uh, the key documents, uh, the really material documents, and, and that's the key thing. The next slide is uh, number 20, finding responsive documents in a large data set, reality of large-scale discovery. And so here's another way of picturing this, that is the, there's a set of relevant documents that you found. There's a larger black uh, circle of hits on non-relevant documents. Um, you certainly would like to have that uh, diminish or have uh, be less than the than the colored circle on the left, but uh, the reality is is that you are going to get hits on non-relevant documents. And then there's the great unknown, and it is a, a very interesting research problem, at least I think so, as to how how do you know uh, well enough that you've done a good enough job? How do you how do you deal with the unknown that isn't found uh, with whatever methods you used, and how do you test or sample uh, to make sure that you for quality control that you've done uh, enough uh, to to reasonably look through a document set? Uh, for the material that you haven't gotten uh, beyond that 1% or 0.1% or whatever it is that, that uh, the future holds. Next slide is uh, measures of information retrieval. And for lawyers, this is about as high mathematics as you get. This is sort of graduate school, I guess. Um, uh, lawyers uh, shy away from numerators and denominators. But uh, recall is, uh, of course, uh, the number of responsive documents retrieved over this mystery R, which is the number of responsive documents in the collection, that obviously has to be estimated for any large universe because one doesn't know what the true R is, but uh, one can um, do approximate measures through various means. The next slide is uh, precision defined and measures of information retrieval, and precision equals number of responsive documents retrieved over the number of documents retrieved, so how much good stuff you're getting over the amount that you're, uh, as a whole, you've gotten. And then the next slide, which is now numbered again, 23, is the recall precision trade-off. And this is uh, elementary to, I'm sure, many, um, whereas you have uh, essentially a uh, re reciprocal relationship. And as you get to the last document, um, in terms of total recall, you've, you've gone through all of the documents, uh, presumably, and therefore have low precision. Uh, but um, the, the key here is to somehow get this curve up further um, to the right and so have greater recall for um, and greater precision at all times. The next slide is uh, three questions. That's how it's labeled. And um, first question, how can one go about improving rates of recall and precision so as to find a greater number of relevant documents while spending less overall time? I've covered that. That's a, that's a key question uh, for lawyers. Um, but particularly improving rates of recall over precision because we don't want to miss any documents. The second is what alternatives to keyword searching exist. I will pose, I haven't proven the point, but I, 
I think um, there would be a general consensus that there are deficiencies to keyword searching because of the ambiguities of language and points uh, expressed previously. And then are there ways in which to benchmark alternative search methodologies so as to evaluate their efficacy? Those, to me, are the, the three uh, questions that, uh, that I get up in the morning worrying about as a lawyer for now and waiting for the next tsunami um, for the government, um, somebody versus U.S. where we're all going to have to search for huge amounts of information. The next slide, uh, Peter, is uh, beyond reliance on keywords alone, alternative search methods. And um, if uh, I, I must apologize in advance for not building out 10 or 20 more slides to account for each one of these uh, separate terms. We go into these different ways of searching, whether it's uh, making greater use of Boolean strings or fuzzy search or probabilistic statistical models, machine learning, uh, categorization tools, social network analysis, all of that um, are uh, different ways, and I'm sure everyone on this phone would have 20 other terms or ways of, of categorizing the world in terms of your own taxonomy of, of search methods. But uh, let me say that we have attempted uh, to to do some sort of analysis or some sort of at least description, I think that's the better term, in an appendix to this new best practices commentary on what the different uh, alternative search methods that are out there uh, really are all about. And we do it in a very, I, I think, straightforward way and, and maybe elementary, but it's I think it would be, uh, it's going to be uh, perceived as, as um, on a certain technical level for most lawyers that they haven't encountered certain terms like latent semantic indexing or vector space models or whatever. And so I think there'll be some eye-opening effect to uh, lawyers reading about a best practices commentary from the Sedona conference with that appendix. The issue for me is that there's there are a million different ways of both linguistically talking about different search methods but also doing them. question for me is how to benchmark them, how how to actually capture the different ways of searching through information and in a way that um, uh, produces uh, better results for as a lawyer, as a practicing in the trenches lawyer, uh, how, does, how do I uh, know that any one of these methods or hybrids or, uh, or uh, multiple methods are doing a better job than keywords alone? So with that, as the throwing down the gauntlet here, let me turn to the next line, uh, which is page 26, which is what is track? Um, I'm sure many may be familiar with TREK, but let me just spend a minute um, say that this is a conference which is uh, first started in 1992 by the National Institute of Standards and Technology and ARDA. It is to promote research in the science of information retrieval. And the the, uh, the 15th conference was held last year. I guess this year it's a week earlier. It's going to be the week of November 6, 2007 at NIST headquarters in Gaithersburg. And um, for many years, uh, Trek uh, went on its way without uh, any involvement with legal interests. Uh, they did all sorts of interesting things and are doing interesting things, genomics, ad hoc, terabyte, all sorts of tracks that exist uh, for communities of interest there. And I encourage everyone to go to the trek.nist.gov website to look at everything that's going on. If we go on to the next slide, which is number 27, uh, the, the Trek 2000 legal track, however, was dreamed up uh, myself and Doug Ord and then Dave Lewis, uh, a very respected researcher in the uh, Trek community, um, and computer scientist slash information retrieval expert, um, the three of us uh, honchoed um, a proposal to to uh, do a legal track for the first time as part of Trek. It was designed to evaluate the effectiveness of search technologies in a real-world legal context. As the first study since 
the Blair and Marin research in 1985. And what we did in the first year, uh, in 2006, was to create five hypothetical complaints, and we ended up with a number of 40-something requests to produce that were drafted by my colleagues at the Sedona Conference uh, and myself um, to to approximate, to be a proxy to the kinds of requests that lawyers really get in the real world as uh, part of complaints and lawsuits, whether it's antitrust or a patent case or a uh, government investigation or a product liability case or what have you. So we dream them up, and, and they're available on the Trek uh, 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 homepage uh, that you all can uh, look at, and, and I think it's referenced at the end. So so the uh, the effort was to come up with a proxy alternative universe where hypothetical complaints to do bullying negotiations, to basically have a back and forth with a plaintiff and a defendant for each request to produce, which would be a topic in Trek to go search for, to come up with a, a Boolean string as a baseline for here is here is basically uh, the Boolean string that relates to this topic. Can you beat it by another search method methodology, or what happens when you use it, or or um, or use parts of it, or refine it? And the documents to be searched were drawn from a publicly available seven million document tobacco litigation database called the Master Settlement Agreement. Now. Let me not confuse anybody on the phone. This is not the White House email. This is something else. This is a database of litigation documents gathered because of the lawsuits that attorney generals from various states sued uh, tobacco companies. And as part of the settlement called the MSA settlement, for 10 years this database exists online. It's a legacy collection and the University of, uh, of California uh, has and uh, and anybody can research it and and search against it and it was used was suggested by Dave Lewis because it had been subject to OCR uh, in large part about seventy percent of it that it was available for the kind of Trek research that we were conducting and so although there were other candidates um, uh, out there um, we including the Enron collection um, not a lot of candidates but a couple. Uh, we decided that this would be a good one to to settle on, and I'm happy to talk offline as to that. I've explained it, actually, at some length in a uh, law review that is just coming out in the Sedona Conference Journal about uh, Trek origins and reflections on the first year. So I, when that comes out, um, uh, people here can, can look at that as well, and, and Peter, will, we can provide a link. So, um, so finally, uh, so there are these hypothetical complaints, requests to produce, uh, the seven million documents and six participating teams in the first year submitting 33 runs from various universities around the world. That is computer scientists, uh, basically with their black box products, whatever it is that they chose to put in, uh, to search against a particular topic, submitting it, NIST pooling that data, and then essentially coming up with, with 800, uh, document pools, uh, for each, um, uh, topic. Uh, which represent a combined set of all the different search methods. So it's essentially a blind study. When I presented an 800-document pool to my volunteers, who I separately got as lawyers and law students who would look at each topic, they wouldn't know which search method produced which document. But their job would be to see what is a relevant document and either code it one or zero, relevant or non-relevant, for each of the 40-something topics. And so if we go to the next page, page 28, which is a track 2006 legal track, XML, um, this is just a slice of it. You can go to the full XML file, and it's, it's perfectly available on, on the web. But it is uh, this was uh, a request number six. It has to do with documents discussing internal approval for the placement of tobacco products, logos, signage, and television programs where the documents expressly refer to the programs being watched by children. 
um, something which was at some point um, made illegal, but there, there are certainly documents in the collection that discuss it. Um, and and uh, here we have um, what is uh, not a back and forth, but a final query of what the Boolean string would be for that. This was given to the, the participating uh, teams to go and search for information, knowing that text, knowing the complaint, and having the Boolean query in hand, uh, which uh, some uh, which to more or less uh, was uh, was looked at, but not heavily utilized in the first year by the participating institutions. Interestingly, but the uh, so everything is this sort of an XML format, very easy for a computer scientist to then uh, train their programs and go forward on it, or maybe not so easy. But it definitely worked out quite well in the first year that we did get uh, some very interesting uh, participant uh, uh, results. Uh, from it, and we are continuing on in the second year, and I'm happy to talk to that at the end. The next slide, um, and we'll discuss in a moment um, what I find intriguing about the results. So the next slide, uh, beyond Boolean, getting at the dark matter, what I said is at the IKL conference that, that uh, we ran on search and retrieval as part of this AI and law conference in Palo Alto, June 4th, which is online with lots of interesting presentations about language, lots of linguists uh, participating in that conference. I would encourage people looking at the DESI workshop. What I said there was, was beyond Boolean was the key. Uh, what can we learn from Trek in the first year of what kind of relevant documents are out there on all these topics that might not have been found by keywords alone? And, uh, and so let's go to the next slide. And uh, I would say my apologies in advance that this should be in a more colorful format and probably easier to use. So it's not a very user-friendly interface here, but let me try to work through these next two slides so everyone here on the phone understands what the results are. The uh, legal track uh, percentage of unique documents by topic found by Boolean and by other combined methods of search. This is page 30, slide 30. This is a list of topics uh, that were uh, conducted as part of the first year track in the order of known relevant documents, so from least to most. Uh, where you see the highest numbers around 500, I already said that the pooling, somewhere between, uh, the it averaged 800, it was between 600 and 900 something for the number of documents per topic. And so you see the, the greatest topic here has 500 or so relevant out of an average of 800. Um, it probably would be more helpful to put the actual number, the actual number of uh, total documents in the pool on some other slide, and maybe I'll do that this year. But in any event, the, what the slide is broken out into what the gray area is, which is the Boolean terms, that's the number of relevant documents per topic that were, um, that were found to be relevant using the keyword string uh, based on the Boolean negotiations. Let's put aside the expert searcher, which was an interactive feedback loop with someone who knew the collection and was looking for, uh, she, were, she was looking for specific documents, and so she found some but let's put that one aside as not as interesting and, and uh, for the moment. And the, uh, the ranked only, the white um, space here, which uh, is what I consider the most relevant. What the white space represents is a combination, a sum function, a sigma, of all of the cumulative search strategies of all the participating runs that were not the Boolean baseline run. So it isn't one search method versus Boolean. It's not that. It's a whole bunch of search methods pooled together, showing that in a combined way for each topic, the combined set 
uh, is the, the white space for each topic as relevant documents as determined by volunteer assessors, as lawyers and law students who are looking at the documents, the relevant documents that were not found by keywords alone or by, um, uh, or by uh, this, this Boolean uh, uh, search string. And another, and what that what that comes to the universe, you can look at the track overview paper and get the numbers. Um, the next slide is another way of looking at the same data. It's uh, slide 31, which is a track legal track 2006, sort by increasing percentage. And here, again, it's a little bit hard to read, uh, but uh, it's the same set of topics except reordered so that you can see the percentage of that white space. Um, so it could be that there are very few known relevant documents, but all of them are found by alternative means. That would generate a high percentage, uh, and and uh, and so it doesn't matter what the absolute number of relevant documents is. It's the it's the relative number, the percentage uh, that counts here. And as you can see, there are many topics that are generating uh, 10, 20, 30, 50, 70, 80, and even uh, to about 100 percent. Uh, by alternative search methods other than keywords, other than Boolean, and let me just say, other than the ways all lawyers in the United States search for information today. Uh, that, I think, is an, a very intriguing result. Um, I have been cautioned, as I've written in print um, in my Trek article, uh, by my colleagues, Doug Ward and Dave Lewis, uh, who inevitably will be listening to this on audio, so I need to say this, which is that... Uh, I, uh, there are lots of caveats to this first-year research as an empirical matter, and we need to be careful not to overhype these findings as something that, uh, you know, is uh, equivalent to some Einstein 1905 paper. Um, the fact is, is that, um, and in fact, it may be in some sense a trivial result to many people on the phone here, uh, but it's not trivial to lawyers. The fact that there are any percentage, even if we can't be sure that what this chart is saying is is uh, perfect for various caveats that my computer scientist colleagues would would say. Even if it's not a perfect representation of, of the first year of Trek, uh, and that it has lots of asterisks to it, nevertheless, it does point the way. It shows something, uh, some phenomenon is going out is going on, which I think lawyers are generally unaware of, and which they need to be aware of. Which is that um, my bottom line is that one needs to think about in a very sophisticated way, um, how to conduct searches in a complex litigation that involve multiple ways of searching for objects, searching for ESI, because if you just rely on one method, whether it's keyword or some concept search or anything that somebody in a legal booth uh, at Legal Track 2007 is selling, um, if you just rely on one product, it may not be enough. It may be that um, one needs to uh, it, it, it surely is the case that, that lawyers need to step back and think about a range of search methodologies that they might wish to employ uh, in any kind of uh, non-trivial problem. Uh, page 32, uh, Boolean versus hypothetical alternative search methods. This is my uh, this is the furthest reach of my mathematical ability, uh, having displayed uh, an XY axis to you all. And so, with apologies, I will launch in here. Um, uh, my XY axis is very simple, increasing effort and increasing success. And it seems to me that when you're looking at alternatives in this space, you want to be at D and not C. You want to find a uh, alternative ways, enhanced ways of searching for information 
that get you better success, better results, you're at point D, not point C for a given amount of effort. Similarly, on the y-axis, you want to be at A and not B. You want to have, for any given target of 300,000 documents that you want in a litigation to be relevant, um, you want to have expended six months of effort at A, not two years of effort at B. So you want to be at A and not B. And uh, and any and I I would think, uh, and I know I'm going way beyond my uh, my expertise on this, but in terms of uh, both, uh, just in terms of sort of a Darwinian principle of uh, weeding out in terms of law firms and and lawyers and inefficiency in the profession, any law firm that is spending uh, resources at B when another law firm can get the same success at A is just going to be driven out by uh, by sort of uh, natural processes. Uh, so, so the profession needs to definitely figure out a way to manage its own costs and resources because corporate America is demanding that, and the government doesn't have the resources to spend years and years on finding information. We all have to find more sophisticated techniques to to do uh, whatever is needed as the minimum bar in litigation. The next uh, slide is uh, is 33, and this is just my sum all on managing litigation risk. It is. Uh, uh, definitely, what you want is to increase your success for the amount for the amount of effort, and by doing so, that equals a lower litigation risk. If you are out there in a litigation saying, "I have done a reasonable search, Your Honor, and we found X amount of documents, and it turns out that there's a cache of documents that have not been found," you have just not only increased your you've, you've increased your litigation risk to the point that you may be Morgan Stanley um, finding. Um, backup tapes at the last minute and uh, encountering a 1.5 billion with a B dollar judgment based on an adverse inference on a jury instruction from a judge. That award was overturned. Uh, it was reversed on appeal on other grounds. But there are serious issues for the profession and gotchas in terms of litigation risk for not being able to reasonably account for the amount of information that you have. And granted, it's I am mixing apples and oranges. It wasn't based on a search per se, but it was based on sort of a representation about the amount of ESI in the form of backup tapes that, that a corporate party had. All of us um, have a problem in any kind of institution where it's more than six people, which is what do you know? How do you know that you have gotten everything, gotten your arms around intellectual control of, of ESI? And it is a problem for everyone in the profession. Once you find amounts of ESI in the haystack, then you want to search it efficiently uh, and not leave anything out, and that's that's the the substance of this talk here. Uh, the next uh, set of slides are what I'm going to end with, which is uh, strategic challenges um, for the profession, and these um, essentially parallel what are going to be practice pointers that are in the uh, Sedona Conference uh, paper that's coming out as best practices. But given that that's still under embargo for the time being, but it will be soon out. Um, sort of transform these into sort of generic statements, but look for these in, in, in a similar form uh, in the paper itself. The first uh, strategic challenge, convincing lawyers and judges that automated searches are not just desirable but necessary in response to large e-discovery demands. Uh, it is certainly incumbent on both the, the bar and the bench to understand that um, uh, one cannot search through uh, large collections on a manual basis anymore. And there are uh, outliers there are going to be uh, members of the judiciary who uh, still believe that uh, in some large case uh, lawyers with enough time and effort can do that kind of manual search. That's, that really is uh, something from yesteryear. 
uh, in very large cases and will increasingly be seen as such. Uh, but my point on the call is, is a corollary, a more convinced, uh, a more sophisticated version of it, which is that even with respect to 1% searching by keywords or whatever, we've reached this tipping point and, uh, we are, we are going to need, uh, new tools to, to accommodate, uh, that even if we're trying to do, uh, manual searching as a second order matter. The next, uh, slide, challenges continued. Having all parties and adjudicators understand that the use of automated methods does not guarantee all responsive documents will be identified in a large data collection. This this is uh, also fundamental. It it is a perhaps it is uh, a you know it's an unfortunate uh, legacy item that uh, that many lawyers and and others uh, believe that they can find everything or all or substantially all. This is where I started with with a myth. It, it in fact you're never going to find that true R no matter how well uh, you do, but um, but you can you can certainly try to do better than uh, what the baseline is now. The next uh, slide challenges continued designing an overall review process which maximizes the potential to find responsive documents in a large data collection, no matter which search tool is used, and using sampling and other analytic techniques to test hypotheses early on. Uh, this is another key point uh, from the Sedona conference perspective. Uh, process is very important. The profession needs to to do it would do well in any kind of complex task to gather an interdisciplinary team of linguists, lawyers, IT people uh, of all stripes, and figure out what the problem is that you're approaching in any litigation. And using sampling, using statistical methods uh, to figure out what it is that the other side is going to ask of you and what you need to ask of the other side, and to to have these kind of sophisticated discussions early on and not late in the litigation when you're when you're in crisis mode. Uh, all right, that's all I'll say about that. The next uh, slide, challenges continued, is uh, parties making a good faith effort to collaborate on the use of particular search methods, uh, including utilizing multiple meet and confers as necessary based on initial sampling or surveying of retrieved ESI based on whatever methods are used. The fact is, and I, this is a key point that I've written about in my information inflation article with George Paul, um, we we need a better, more sophisticated process in terms of meeting confers with the other side. Um, I think everyone who has ever met me knows that I'm a pretty competitive person. Uh, my wife and daughter have banned me from playing Monopoly in my own home because of my competitive streak. For me, uh, it's a little like uh, President Nixon going to China for me to say this, but we need to be more collaborative. Uh, it is hard for me to say that as a lawyer, to be more collaborative with opposing counsel. But... We need to be. We need to be upfront. We need to be transparent as lawyers. We need to have multiple meet and confers to show uh, the other side what it is that we have sampled against our collection to say, do you want more documents like this or do you want more documents like this, X or Y? And uh, to do that in, in structured ways with, with an iterative feedback loop, what I call a virtuous cycle in my, in my law review, and that uh, will just uh, have to take place. Judges will expect it. Judges at, at e-discovery conferences that I have uh, encountered have said that it's no longer the case that, that uh, search terms, keywords, are going to be attorney work product or thought to be that. You need to be out there and sharing it. And the case law does support some limited forays in this where judges are saying, hey, share your, your search terms and, and uh, discuss these matters. But the case law is not quite there yet on uh, the kind of issues that we've been discussing on the phone in terms of alternatives to uh, to keyword searching, and that's that's where the future lies. But the meet and confer is, is extremely important. It's early on. Rule 26F 
now requires in federal court that lawyers talk to each other early on about ESI, about preservation, about access, about uh, formatting. And as part of that discussion, inevitably, search issues are going to come up uh, where the parties should, should have a robust discussion about what kind of methods of searching are going to be employed and stipulated to. And hopefully, in many encounters, from a game theory perspective, um, this is uh, well-known from Axelrod's work and, and elsewhere that uh, the best, the most optimum way of approaching a game theory, uh, a litigation from a game theory perspective is to basically um, uh, to, to uh, collaborate. And that is to, uh, from a prisoner's dilemma and, and game theory, is the best to collaborate uh, from the get-go on a multiple iterative uh, set of moves, uh, as I discuss in, in the law review. And if you do that, if you're collaborating with the other side, if you're stipulating to ways of searching for information without uh, playing tricks or, or doing gotchas with the other side or, or not uh, showing the other side what you've done, uh, I think uh, it's a win-win for, for everyone involved. And so, again, I'm the last person on earth who would uh, be uh, seen as uh, someone who would spend more time with opposing counsel than I would have to, but that's just the reality of uh, litigation in the world now. The next slide, challenges uh, continued. Being open to using new and evolving search and information retrieval methods and tools. Um, this is something that is sort of my equivalent of the infinitely expandable ESI. It is clear that as soon as the Sedona Conference paper comes out on the street in August uh, later this month or whenever it does come out, it will be superseded within hours, I'm sure, by someone typing up and saying, you've missed this, that, and the other uh, search methodology. And so I fully expect Richard Brayman uh, and his colleagues at Sedona to be tapping me on the shoulder a couple years from now uh, or someone who succeeds me and says, uh, time for an update, um, time for a new appendix because you missed these 15 new search methods that you haven't discussed. I'm well aware of that. Lawyers should be well aware of it. This is a rapidly changing uh, field. There's uh, going to obviously be uh, interesting ways, uh, hybrids and all sorts of ways of describing search for information, including through new and uh, untold methods of artificial intelligence and uh, work that many of you you do. And so the, the, the challenge is to somehow be aware of that, to have an ongoing dialogue uh, with the profession um, regarding these, uh, what, is, what constitutes best science, best practices um, in it to incorporate, uh, you know, what will obviously be an evolution in this area. Uh, the next slide is leading U.S. case precedent on automated searches. Um, the first decision, Treppel versus Biodale, is uh, essentially a proxy for, for all decisions that are out there. Uh, there's a number of them, 15 or 20, that are listed in the Sedona commentary that's coming out in a footnote about keyword searches and search protocols. Uh, what judges are doing, uh, for the most part, in the United States are saying, here, parties, sit down, and uh, they lock the room, uh, take, take a key and, and lock the door, and you stay in the room, and you come up with your search protocol, um, and don't come out until you've, uh, you've agreed on something. And that's uh, probably a very good practice uh, uh, so far as it goes. Um, however, it's, it's only, uh, you know, two-dimensional or, or uh, whatever dimensional. It's not fully dimensional in an n-dimensional sense in terms of the, uh, the amount of uh, search methods that are out there. If you just come up with somebody has 20 keywords and another has 100 keywords, you can compromise on 75, but you've, you've missed the whole idea of concept searching so, um, and using all these other sophisticated methods. And so while that, that does uh, serve to be best practices today, I think there's going to be an evolution in the case law. And we are seeing that um, by the next case that cited their Disability Rights Council, where as part of the case, case goes off on a number of different 
issues backup tapes and otherwise. But of interest to me is Judge Fasciola citing um, the article that I've written and, and basically saying there is a difference between keyword searching and concept searching, and uh, the parties should just be aware of it and, and have that as part of their discussion. And I think uh, there will be, with the Sedona commentary coming out, a, a cottage industry of, of similar opinions, and I certainly uh, will be very interested in seeing a developing case law on this, um, which could go any number of ways uh, in terms of challenges to the way searches are done uh, under various standards. But, um, you know, we, the future is uh, we'll, we'll see. It will bear itself out on that topic. The next slide is future research. Um, there is a TREC 2007 legal track. Um, I suppose I should put in a shameless plug here that I, I, I still need people as volunteers, as lawyers out there, if there are any lawyers or people who know lawyers and law students who want to participate. I, I am trolling for additional volunteers. I need to get to 62 by September 15, 2007, but we'll make it one way or the other. And you certainly can email me if you want to participate in the project as a volunteer to look at 500 documents this year. There are, I'm glad to say that there are a, there are more parties participating this year. There are more runs and, uh, it's the same tobacco data set, data set. It's just different, four different hypotheticals and, and 50 new topics that have been dreamed up. And so, uh, we will uh, look forward to a completion of the assessment round and an analysis of the results. And, uh, I will be there in Gaithersburg on November 7th to report out what we know about that, and then at some point uh, it will catch up in terms of a public website, probably in the early January, February time frame for papers to be reported out to the world. Um, in addition, there's the Sedona Conference itself with the commentary that I mentioned and additional activities where there hopefully will be partnerships in the world um, uh, that, uh, that take place uh, through the good offices of the Sedona Conference. And finally, references. Well, I've given a number here. Um, I've written a couple of articles I guess the references are on, on pages 41. Uh, there are two, two articles that are worth uh, looking at in terms of uh, uh, the general problems of benchmarking as well as information inflation. Page 42 of the slides uh, references include the best practices commentary, which is forthcoming, as well as the second bullet, my, my own article on the first year of Trek is forthcoming. That one would be available on Westfall Lexus, but if anybody wants to to, uh, to have a copy, I'm, I'm happy to uh, just email me when it comes out, and I can send it to you privately um, if you don't have access to these databases. Uh, the other Trek materials are all up on a public website or websites and, and uh, certainly all available. That's one of the neat things about Trek is that it's transparent to the world, and anybody can replicate the results, including looking at the database and doing your own runs. Uh, that's uh, that. And then on page 43 of the slides, uh, there was an extraordinary conference held on June 4th, uh, 2007 at ICAIL, which is AI and the Law Group. Um, lots of very interesting papers. Uh, if you type in DESI Workshop or you go into this or you click on here, you'll, you'll see a whole set of PowerPoints and a whole set of presentations by um, uh, uh, an interesting communities of, of both uh, uh, linguists, computer scientists, and lawyers uh, talking about these issues as a follow-up to Trek. I very much be interested in continuing this dialogue with anybody that is on the phone to email me at slide 44. You have my email address and my phone number. I um, travel around and uh, I am not adverse to actually showing up at somebody's door to have a conversation, but if anybody here on the phone is in Washington, um, I uh, guarantee you uh, that you can sit down with me and chat more about these issues. I will learn from 
um, from all of you, and uh, I could also offer a backstage tour of the National Archives um, as a bonus. Um, beyond that, uh, the Sedona Conference and uh, is definitely looking at funding opportunities in the future for communities of interest, and I, I myself would very much be interested in hearing whether in a brainstorming sense, whether anyone on the line here has uh, ideas about ways to convince um, funding agencies to to further the work of TREC, either to amplify TREC itself in the legal track or to go beyond. There is uh, some very interesting problems uh, that uh, that TREC itself uh, has a has uh, some ability to solve, but I think the real world of lawyering is so large and complex that we could we could go uh, even further than uh, than the TREC effort by itself, which. Uh, I have elsewhere described as a snowflake village. So with that, um, I think I'm going to end here, and I will turn it over to Peter to, uh, to for any questions or for any other dialogue. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Jason. And I think uh, the community will agree with me that this is among the most eloquently uh, presented uh, reality of how or what the work product of people like the ontolog community are working towards and how that work could possibly be viewed and used. So uh, let's go to questions. Person uh, from the 613 area code who has unmuted himself, so please go ahead and uh, identify yourself first, name and uh, institution, if you please. Uh, hi, this is Adrian Walker from Reengineering. Uh, th that was a very, very interesting talk. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I have a question, please, Jason, um, and it goes back to your slide 17 and the, the problem with 1% uh, not scaling as, as you get more and more ESI records. Um, the, 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 the thought is this, um, and I, it will become immediately apparent that I'm not a lawyer, but I'm, I have a vague idea that, um, that junior people in an organization um, are not legally responsible for things they might write in email, and that the corollary of that might be that um, if you're trying to uh, look for relevant emails amongst uh, a billion emails, um, if you restrict to email either sent by or received by officers of the corporation, um, maybe that gives you an immediate filter um, because those are the people who could be held legally responsible for, for what's in those emails. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering if there's any work already about sort of reasoning about the metadata that is available in the emails, such as um, you know, combining that with the organization, who the CEO is, who the CFO is, and so on, whether that's a, a useful approach and whether it's been tried. All right. Uh, I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, it is certainly the case that metadata is important, and there are ways to search that enhance searches by using fielded techniques that isolate individuals in an organization, and the representational data that uh, that is out there sort of on an a priori basis about who's who in an organization be very important for lawyers to uh, understand, to contextualize the ESI stack. Having said that, 
uh, it is, I, I guess I would challenge uh, the uh, assumption that junior people are not responsible for um, uh, at least uh, interesting documents in litigation. It may well be that corporate policy is set, um, first, not by email, and secondly, um, in some places, and secondly, by higher-ups. But uh, the world as I know it is a world that is very democratic um, and one that is unfair to organizations in many ways, whereas the, the smoking gun documents come from everywhere. And on an a priori basis, you can't eliminate uh, junior people uh, in the chain from essentially ferreting out as whistleblowers something that is truly interesting, candid, and uh, a gotcha document that, that gets the, the senior person in trouble. I'm sure Bill Gates uh, was not responsible for everything in the Microsoft world uh, for uh, the litigation that, that occurred in antitrust and was surprised by some emails down the line uh, that were used as exhibits in that case. And there's countless others um, where where uh, email is the gotcha document uh, as the uh, uh, for uh, in in various contexts. And and I also wouldn't know where to draw that line in government very easily. Um, because in some sense there are hundreds, if not thousands, of actors in organizations which, who, who may well uh, have something relevant or material uh, to report about. But I do understand the issue, and it ver- it's a very interesting one. And I think um, the question of metadata, field of data, and how to optimize searches using prior knowledge of the document set, especially with respect to the, re- the relationships of people, um, is a very interesting one. It's interesting from visualizing email, uh, from the kind of uh, 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 sets that can be drawn and, and visual diagrams, as well as just finding relevant uh, documents in, in better ways. And so I, I support that methodology as one of the arsenals, as a, a one method of many in an arsenal to try to prioritize what kind of responsive uh, data one get data one gets back. I also will say that there are many litigation contexts that only involve junior people. Uh, in a Title VII lawsuit or EEO lawsuit, it may well be that there's a locus of key actors that are in the middle of an organization that don't involve the top, and therefore, by definition, you, you need to go and look at a subset that you wouldn't otherwise capture if you're only filtering for the top. But I, I understand the point, and I think it's very well taken. Oh, thank you. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Adrian. Uh, it's, it's Patrick DeRusso uh, on, lo- on the line. If you would uh, mute your phone with a star three, uh, we could uh, have uh, Jason field your questions. Uh, Patrick was kind enough to send over his list of questions beforehand over email, uh, which was great. Uh, which is great. So, uh, Patrick, are you online now? Yes, I'm so, the 678 number. 678? Yeah. All right, go ahead. Uh, if you speak up a little bit, that that would even be better. Yes, please. Okay, hang on a second. I was having to... Uh I was having to recover my email <laughs> where I where I actually forwarded them. Uh, the first question I had uh, was: Would future track tasks include the analysis of relationships between authors and recipients, and the keywords in their documents? I think there uh, is room in the track space 
to do lots of things. Uh, and, uh, it is not the case, as far as I know, that the 7 million documents, although there's lots of metadata, it's not, it's not metadata that I think uh, can be used in quite uh, the way that you would intend uh, for us to use as part of track. And so uh, I think it actually uh, the Enron collection that's online probably is a more well-known collection uh, which can be searched through for officers and for other uh, key authors and recipients. And so in that sense, uh, it's unfortunate that we went with a tobacco uh, data set, which is uh, more difficult, has all sorts of different uh, iconoclastic metadata fielding as part of it, and so it isn't as easy to do as a uh, in an enterprise-wide sense. But I think the the point you're making is is a key one, and I would be delighted to be part of uh, either as part of Trek or if we could figure out how to do it as a subset of the tobacco universe, or if we go to a different database in the future to do that kind of analysis, other relationship analysis, which I think, as I've already discussed uh, in answer to the last question, I think is is very much a key. Uh, element of enhancing searches. Well, thank you. I, I had another the one other question I, that after your presentation, I thought was particular. You uh, you talked about how this is a, an information retrieval, like in a basically unstructured data that that occurs in an enterprise situation. And I was wondering if there is any research on the reliability of retrieval on what we would normally think of as being structured data, like like legal documents, court decisions, uh, and that sort of material. Yes, I think I uh, was attempting to to anticipate um, yeah that question as part of my reference to Howard Turtle's work on uh, in Westlaw, and there and I could give you a site. Uh, it's in my benchmarking article in a footnote and um, elsewhere, but I'm I'm happy offline to continue the discussion. Um, and I, it may be somewhat obscure. I'm not sure that, that his work is available online. We would have to actually go to a library and find it. But, um, it, but there, there are uh, certainly Westlaw, for one, now Thompson, and, and, uh, and LexisNexis certainly have been doing research on this, and uh, various actors have been reporting out um, findings with respect to search efficacy in, a, in the structured sense. My, my point, and so there, there is, there's certainly work there. I don't purport to know uh, all of it. Uh, the the interesting is that uh, case law is a uh, is uh, while it is a, a, a fascinating topic for in terms of informatics and an AI perspective of how to model against uh, case law and, and draw some conclusions uh, from their perspectives on it. Um, the world I live in is is truly uh, a wild zoo compared with case law and. Uh, when you're looking at instant messaging or email or PowerPoints or any kind of product that we have on our desktop, uh, the problems about finding relevant information reliably for those kind of products and forms of language um, are far different than a than a highly structured set of case law that that um, that exists out there based on the proprietary databases that exist. And so, uh, it is uh, to me, it's a it's a richer problem that I have, a more difficult task, maybe not of a different kind topologically, but it's still a, a one that feels harder to me uh, than, than searching case law. Lawyers know how to search case law um, uh, relatively well. They, they're lazy for the most part in typing only in a few terms, uh, just like we're all lazy in terms of 
finding out information on Google, we, we go and we type in a few keywords and we think we're going to recover everything we need to know about uh, a vacation in Vermont or something by, by uh, typing in uh, just a couple of words. Just, similarly, uh, we all are guilty to some extent of, of doing um, the least effort uh, to, to try to get at these problems. And what I'm suggesting as part of this talk is that we all have to sort of step up. Uh, lawyers sort of know how to do that with both keywords and natural language searches against fielded databases like, uh, like case law, but, but no one really knows how to approach uh, the one billion document haystack. Well, thank you. And uh, by the way, I really enjoyed the presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, let me repeat, if you have a question, please press 1-1 one, one now. Uh, and if you have more than one person, then we, we could sort of go down in succession. Uh, so please, uh, if you have a question. Uh, in the meantime, maybe I, I have one uh, question for Jason and Peter Yim here, uh, just out of my ignorance. I, I remember you mentioned that uh, it's it sort of... Uh, Maybe this is just uh, for the, the track uh, experiment. Is I mean, you could actually reduce the uh, re responsive documents to ones or zeros, relevant or non-relevant. I mean, in in real life, I mean, is that really the case, or or you've sort of grossly simplified it for the experiment? Well, I'm told by my computer scientist colleagues that there has been, there's a whole field of research about looking at problems from gradations of relevance where documents are judged in other contexts and track other tracks by whether they're highly relevant or less relevant. Um, it is uh, certainly the case that in the legal world, uh, there are documents that are material, that are just right on point, and everyone would agree that they are and then documents that might be tangentially relevant because they have a stray term in a sentence or a paragraph or they, they just touch on some subject and while uh, your duty would be uh, you know, to produce them, you don't really think they're, they amount to much. So one could attempt as part of a third year of TREK, uh, uh, if I'm so lucky, uh, to, uh, to uh, try to, to tease out that research problem uh, and uh, try to understand uh, basically on a triaging perspective, what would be the, the most relevant documents, the most material documents to a litigation where all the search engines or some would agree on those versus uh, sort of a scattershot of what are less relevant. From an assessor point of view, from a volunteer point of view, this is tricky. And for lawyers, it's tricky because I think while it is, uh, it is subjective enough to figure out what's relevant and not relevant to do gradations is, um, is an interesting problem. And in the real world, the bottom line is if I think a document is in any way, shape, or form um, contains a relevant uh, tangential remark uh, to a topic request, I am under an ethical duty to produce it. And so the real world is one zero. It may not be applied very well. It may be subject to human variance in all the ways that we can think about and uh, in very, uh, you know, in, in a million different contexts. But at the end of the day, uh, for me, I either produce stuff that I think is is relevant uh, and withhold privilege, and not produce non-relevant. And so, uh, so I think it actually uh, the Trek model accords with my real-world experience. Well, 
Thank you very much for the very extensive answer, uh, Jason. Okay, we have a question from uh, someone from the 301 area code. Uh, with yes, hi, this is Den uh, Dennis Ahern from Lockheed Martin. Uh, have you, you had the opportunity to um, – um, excellent talk, Jason. Um, have you. you had the opportunity to look at multiple, I guess, past searches? For example, in, in using a Boolean string, for example, against a, a massive database, you'll come up with documents. But the uh, and you try to keep your Boolean string relatively small, I guess, because you know you need to go and see how accurate um, your first pass at that is. But then when you um, you know you have an opportunity to go through a number of these documents, how about changing the search on a second pass through? For example, you found an email from X to Y or to a whole bunch of Ys. And then you just go through and say, okay, I just need to look at all of the emails from X for that period and then six months before and six months after, and then just have a much larger uh, set of keywords to look at, for example, um, so that you would be using some of the, you know, you'd be using some of the good found data as an indicator of a likely additional source to look, and it would require, you know, obviously a second search, but you could broaden it out and hopefully find more of the documents in the great unknown which had not been using the key that were relevant that had not used the keywords that were in your initial search. I think that's an excellent uh, observation and one that um, that every lawyer should be um, aware of. Uh, that is consistent with the argument that I make in my law review that we should have an, inter uh, an iterative process to any uh, non-trivial search problem um, where you essentially come up, you dream up with your team uh, an answer to the other side. You're prepared to give that answer based on a sample, and then you have a transparent process where, in a collaborative fashion, you work on what other searches uh, could be done against the set. Now, of course, there are resource constraints, and uh, and opposing counsel don't usually, as I've emphasized before, uh, like to spend a whole lot of time with each other. So there are certain real-world problems about this. But in fact, uh, I think that's that is precisely a uh, a good strat one of many good strategies to employ. Any any structured strategy that that involves an an, an iterative feedback loop with a a uh, large universe of data strikes me as enhancing recall and enhancing precision. Uh, it might actually lower precision in some context, but it would certainly enhance recall. And uh, if that's where the game is at, not to miss any documents, then, then that, uh, I think, is a, uh, is a valuable uh, suggestion uh, that should be incorporated into any uh, litigation program. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Uh, do we have... Any further questions? Uh, if not, uh, let me again uh, take the opportunity to thank Jason for uh, such a great presentation and for fielding uh, the questions and answers. Again, thanks to uh, Susan and Bob who uh, uh, organized the conference that makes this uh, event happen. And uh, I thank everyone 
for joining us today. And again, this is August 23rd, year 2007, and it's the Ontolog Invited Speaker event with uh, Jason Barron, the Director of Litigation from NARA, uh, for us uh, on the topic, Lawyers, Language, and Legal Risks, Emerging Issues in E-Discovery. Thank you, Jason, and thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.